If you would, I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to John chapter 6. We'll be continuing in John chapter 6 this morning, and uh, specifically we'll be in verses 30 through 40. But in order to set the context, let's begin reading in verse 25. We'll start reading in verse 25 and read down through verse 40, but specifically we're going to be considering verses 30 through 40 today. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do, that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now, as we, as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under two main points. First of all, don't harden your hearts. And secondly, come to Jesus. Don't harden your hearts and come to Jesus. Now, we saw... Last week, that when this crowd of Galileans followed Jesus from Bethsaida across to Capernaum, they were coming with very base and low motives. They weren't coming after him because they believed in him as the Son of God. They weren't even coming after him at this point because they were intrigued by the miracles that he was performing. Originally, back in the beginning of chapter 6, that was why they were coming, was because they were intrigued by his miracles. But by this point... It was not that. Their motives in following him were simply because they ate of the loaves and were filled, as Jesus says there in verse 26. And we saw last week also that correction which our Lord gave to this crowd by directing their attention away from laboring for this food that perishes to laboring rather for the food that endures to eternal life. And we saw that the way to do that work is by faith. The work of God is that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And so this is 
what our Lord had said to these Galileans who had seen his miracles, they had seen the healings which he had performed on the sick, they followed him because of what they saw, these Galileans who had eaten the fish and loaves which he had miraculously multiplied before them. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But notice here in what follows there in verse 30, the brazen response that they gave to him. Jesus said, the work of God is this, believe in him whom he has sent. And they say to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now let's think about what's going on here. These people had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen him multiply the fish and loaves miraculously. Upon seeing the sign, as we find in, up in verse 14, they believed that Jesus was the prophet who was to come into the world, and they were right in that conclusion. But yet when Jesus tells them the work of God is to believe on him whom God has sent, they tell him, what sign do you do? And the implication, of course, that Jesus is going for is believe on me. And they, they understand it. It's clear that they understood what Jesus was implying. And yet they still have the gall to say, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, if we read this and really understand what's happening here, our mouths ought to be wide open at this point. What are these people thinking? They had seen signs, more than one. But when Jesus calls them to believe on him, they asked him what sign would he perform so that he would prove to be whom he claimed to be. The attitude of these Galileans stands out to us as a warning against hardness of heart. And let's notice a couple things here about the condition of their hardened hearts and take warning for ourselves from their condition. First and most obviously, hardness of heart can exist even in the undeniable presence of the miraculous. These people had seen and experienced and been the recipients of the miraculous works of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus were undeniable to these Galileans. And if you had been there that day and had asked, taken a poll among the members of this crowd, whether they had seen Jesus perform a miracle, I'm sure they would have said yes. Yes, we have. But there would have been a caveat. They would have said yes, but. Yes, but the one I saw wasn't big enough. Yes, but I need to see at least one more. Yes, but. Yes, but. What? Would one more miracle performed by Jesus really have brought them to faith in Him? I doubt it. Many will tell you that seeing is believing, but we learn here that this is simply not true. The miraculous works of Jesus pointed to His identity as the Son of God, pointed to His identity as the Messiah, as the prophet who was to come into the world. They were evidence of His claims. They were a witness to his claims, but the mere sight of the miraculous is no guarantee that genuine faith and repentance will follow. And we see that very plainly here in the text. And it's not only here. You see this throughout Scripture. We 
see a similar phenomenon going on in the days of the apostles, in those days when the Lord was miraculously confirming the word of the gospel by signs and wonders. So if you think in Acts 3, Peter and John healed that lame beggar in the temple, and everybody in Jerusalem knew that a miracle had taken place. And then in Acts chapter 4, the, uh, the rulers of the Jews, the scribes and elders, the members of the Sanhedrin were gathered together in discussion about what to do about Peter and John in light of this that had taken place, and they said, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It's Acts 4.16. So the point is, everybody knew about this. Even the rulers of the Jews knew about this. There was no denying it, but it did not automatically bring faith to those who acknowledged it. You see the same thing in the missionary journey, the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra in Acts 14. When those idolaters saw that Paul and Barnabas had healed a lame man, they thought, oh, this must be Zeus and Hermes. And they attempt to offer a sacrifice to them. And certainly they were wrong, but given their presuppositions and pre-existing beliefs, we can at least understand why they might have acted on that occasion as they did. But what is noteworthy here for the point is that after Paul and Barnabas had set the record straight and said, no, we're, we're not gods. We actually came to tell you about the true God. Then after this, some Jews came down from Pisidian Antioch and persuaded the crowd to stone Paul and drag him out of the city. These people saw the miracle. They believed something false and ended up disbelieving altogether the message that Paul was trying to proclaim. Seeing is not believing. When someone tells you that they have to see it in order to believe it, or that if they had seen Jesus perform a miracle, or if they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they would believe in him. We need to treat their claims with a certain level of suspicion. Or to put it more personally, when your own heart begins to doubt and say to you, if you had only seen it, then you could believe it. If only Jesus would do some miracle for you now, or make some miraculous appearance to you now, then you could believe. We need to treat our own hearts with a certain level of suspicion at that point. Hearts that say such things are either hardened or perhaps at least on the way working up to becoming hardened. Hearts that say such things are not a whole lot different from the hearts of these Galileans who said, what then do you do for a sign that we may see you and believe you? And secondly, notice that a hardened heart can exist side by side with a working knowledge of Scripture and at least a partial knowledge of God's plan of salvation. These people certainly knew of the promise of the Messiah. They were expecting the prophet like Moses who was to come into the world. These people knew their Old Testament history and they knew their Old Testament well enough that they were able to quote a passage from Psalm 78, that psalm that we sang earlier this morning, to prove their point that their fathers in the Old Testament times had received bread from heaven to eat. Their words in verse 31, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat, seems to be a quotation of Psalm 78, 24. Psalm 78, 24 reads, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Now Psalm 78 is a great psalm, but I'm not sure that would be the first place that I would think of to try to prove the point about the wilderness generation eating manna. But these people went there to prove their point. And the fact that they went there to Psalm 78 proves to us that they knew their Bibles, and they knew it very well. Obviously, knowing your Bible is a good thing. Knowing your Bible is better than 
not knowing your Bible. But the point here, which is borne out in John 6, is that you can still know your Bible and have a hardened heart. The two can coincide together. And make no mistake, their, psalm, their citation of Psalm 78, verse 24, there in verse 31 of John 6, coupled with their questions in verse 30, is a very hardened and in-your-face approach to Jesus. They're using Scripture as their basis for questioning Jesus. They're using it as their basis for trying to show Jesus why the miracles that he had already shown them were insufficient. They're essentially taking the Bible and saying, See, Jesus, you're not good enough. They're basically saying, Yeah, we've seen you heal people. And sure, we we saw you feed the 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, but that's nothing. What is that compared to what Moses did for our fathers in the wilderness? There were hundreds of thousands of people there in the wilderness. And Moses fed them with bread that fell straight out of heaven, not with bread that was miraculously multiplied and already pre-existing. Come on now, if you want us to believe you, you've got to show us something more than this. In our judgment, you haven't done anything greater than Moses. You're not even particularly close. That's basically the attitude that these people are projecting here. And they're trying to use the Bible to support them in their wicked attitude. They were using, or rather misusing, the scriptures so as to support them in their unbelief and to justify themselves from holding back instead of believing in Jesus. This is a warning to us in regard to how we handle the scriptures. If we use them in hardness of heart, we can twist them and distort them to our own destruction. Isn't that what, what Peter says, Second Peter 3.16? That the untaught and unstable distorted the letters of Paul as they did the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now contrast that distortion and destruction with the way that Paul described the right use of scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.15-17. As he said that from childhood, Timothy had known the sacred writings, which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Knowledge of the Bible is good, but beware that the Scriptures can be used for perverse purposes. These people were trying to use the Scriptures to justify them, continuing on in unbelief, to justify themselves in demanding more miracles of Jesus. That's not good. Don't use the scriptures like that. Take care that you derive from scripture the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. And notice then how in verse 32, Jesus corrects a part of their misunderstanding and misinterpretation of scripture and of the Old Testament history. He says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Now this verse shows us how the crowd had misunderstood something critical. They thought that it was Moses that had given their father's manna to eat out of heaven. And thus it seemed that when they cited Psalm 78, 24, he gave them bread to eat out of heaven. It seems that they took the he as referring to Moses, as if Moses had done this. And Jesus sets the record straight so as to say, no, no. It wasn't Moses who gave your father's bread to eat out of heaven. Moses didn't perform a miracle there. God was the one 
who gave them bread to eat out of heaven, just as it is God who gives you the true bread that comes out of heaven. The manna in the wilderness time was a shadow that was pointing ahead to Christ. The manna was bread. Christ himself is the true bread. Both were given by God, and both were given to grumbling and unbelieving people. And we know the history of the wilderness generation, how grumbling and unbelieving they were, yet God gave them manna to eat. And likewise, we see the same history repeating itself among these Galileans here. These are grumbling and unbelieving people. But yet Jesus says to them there in verse 32, It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Bread of God, again, given to grumbling and unbelieving people. God gave them, those ungrateful and unbelieving Galileans, his only begotten son. That Christ came and preached the gospel to them. He called them to repent. He called them to believe went about doing good before their very eyes. And it seems like at the end of the day, most of them responded to the true bread from heaven in about the same way that their forefathers had responded to the manna, the shadow of the true bread that was to come. Their forefathers had responded to the manna with hardened hearts, with grumbling and unbelieving hearts. And so friends, let's be on guard for ourselves against such hardened heart. Let's realize that even we, as believers, are not immune to tragic patterns of thinking and acting, these same tragic patterns which affected these people here. Can we not imagine that if we had one more miracle, one that we could see, that then our faith would be so much stronger, that we would never waver in shadows of unbelief or doubt? Can we not sometimes think and drop to such a a level where we seek to use the scripture to to strengthen our doubts and to justify us in maintaining our doubts and to justify our irreverent questioning of God instead of rather using our scriptures to, to strengthen our faith and to further our progress in Christ. The answer on both counts is that yes, yes we can. We can sink to that level. It was indeed a wise line in a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that says, from hardness of heart and contempt of thy word and commandment, good Lord, deliver us. We all need to be delivered from hardness of heart and from contempt of God's word and contempt of God's commandments. And thus we read in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so what will your posture be before God? Will it be one of a hardened hearts, hardened in skepticism, hardened in Something else, maybe. There are lots of ways to be hardened, lots of ways to be rebellious, lots of ways to shake your fist at God, lots of ways to turn your back on God. And we see this tragic pattern happening again and again in the biblical history. We see it happening all around us in the real world. What will your posture be? Will it be that of a hardened heart? Or will it be that of humble submission to the testimony which God has given concerning His Son, through the prophets and the apostles. The apostle Paul saw this hardness, and he also saw the humility of those who submitted to Christ in faith. And this is why he was able to say, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, 
God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. The Jews, a stumbling block, and the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. Jews ask for signs. We see that here. Greeks seek for wisdom. Different people seek for for different things. But God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. To those who believe, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Again, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This brings us to our second point for this morning, which is come to Jesus. After making it clear here in the text that it was God and not Moses who had given them the bread from heaven, Jesus says to them in verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He tells them about the nature of this true bread. And Jesus is still being a bit vague here. The clarity will come, but Jesus is, to this point, interacting with these Galileans in a similar way to which he was interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well back in, back in John chapter 4. When Jesus told that woman about the living water that, that he gave, which was the kind of water that whoever drank of it would never thirst again, what did that woman say? She said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And so in a similar manner, Jesus has these people who have bread on the brain, as it were, And so he tells these people about the bread of God which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And in a manner reminiscent of the Samaritan woman, these these people say to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus, tell us about bread, give it to us, we want it. And after their request, Jesus begins speaking in a much more straightforward fashion. Up to this point, he's been a little vague in some of his statements. Spoken about this food that endures to eternal life and the necessity of believing in the one whom God has sent, that God the Father gives this true bread that gives life to the world. But beginning in verse 35, he, he speaks clearly. He brings these strings together, as it were, into a single rope. And he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The bread which Jesus had been speaking of all along, the food that endures to eternal life, was himself He himself is the bread of God which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The way to work for the food that endures to eternal life is to believe upon him. And notice there in verse 35 the interchangeable terms which Jesus uses and also the metaphors that he establishes. In Jesus' terminology here in verse 35, to come and to believe are one and the same thing. To come is to believe, to believe is to come. These are one and the same. And then the metaphors, and this will be very helpful for us as we move forward in in John chapter 6 over the next couple of weeks. Metaphor number one is that to come is to eat. Notice what Jesus says, he who comes to me will not hunger. The implication is coming is eating. He who comes to Jesus, he who believes in Jesus, eats because such a one will not hunger. Metaphor number one, to come is to eat. Metaphor number two is that to believe is to drink. For he says, he who believes in me will never thirst. He who believes in Jesus, he who comes to Jesus, drinks. Just as food and drink give 
life to the body of the one who eats and drinks, so also does Jesus give life to the soul of the one who comes to him and believes in him. That's metaphor number two, that to believe is to drink. Jesus is the bread of life and he gives us what our souls need, such that the one who comes to him and believes in him will never hunger or thirst again. This is not to say that those who believe in Jesus will never again have any sense of spiritual need or of spiritual want. We must continue to abide in Christ. Jesus does not, what, what Jesus does mean here, as, as one writer expressed it so well, is that there is no longer that core emptiness that the initial encounter with Jesus has met. When Jesus says that the one who comes to him will not hunger, the one who believes in him will never thirst, he's not saying that that we won't have spiritual ups and downs where we feel more spiritually hungry than we did maybe yesterday or last week. But what he is saying is that the, the emptiness, that hole in our hearts and souls before we come to Christ, that is filled and met. That's that's what he's getting at. That the one who comes to him, the one who believes in him, will not hunger, will not thirst. After coming to Christ in faith, we still will sense our weakness and our neediness, and sometimes more than others, but the emptiness and the desperation of starvation will no longer be there. Christ satisfies the hungry soul who comes to him in faith. But the problem here in this context is that these people won't do that. They won't come to him. They won't believe. And so Jesus says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. As we've already seen, they have hardened hearts. Seeing was not believing. But we find in what follows here, in verses 37 through 40, that Jesus' coming was not in vain, despite their unbelief. And so notice there in verses 37 through 40 the connection that Jesus makes between the election of the Father and the final preservation of those who are His to the day of glory. Now, it's perfectly clear that we don't see anything of the, of the word election or predestination in, in these verses. We don't see those words used explicitly. But nevertheless, this is the reality that, that Jesus is speaking of. And so he says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, God the Father has given a people to Jesus. And don't we hear echoes of that in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer? In John 17, verse 6, where he says in prayer to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, in John 17, Jesus was specifically speaking of, of the disciples, of the apostles. God had given them to Christ. And what was said there specifically in John 17 of the disciples and the apostles is true of all who will ultimately believe. And we see this here in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. The Father has given a people to Christ. And those who were given to Christ will certainly come. And what is this but that reality of which Paul speaks in Ephesians 1, 3-6 where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, 
to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And there is more here. Look at the second half of verse 37. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. We learn here that Jesus will never turn away from him anyone who comes to him in true faith. He tenderly and willingly receives all who come to him in such a way. But the emphasis of Jesus here when he says that the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out seems to to be not related to the initial coming, but rather that after you have come, Jesus is not going to cast you out from himself, which is to say that he will keep those who come to him. He will preserve them. He will cause them to persevere. They're going to make it to the end because of Jesus. As one commentator put it so well, Christ will never cast them out of his affections, nor out of his arms, nor out of that family which is named of him, nor out of and from his church which is his body, and of which they are members, nor out of a state of justification and salvation. Therefore they shall never perish, but have everlasting life. And thus when we take the two parts of verse 37 together, we find that there's a, there's a chain of mercies given to those people who are His. Those mercies begin with God the Father choosing a people and giving them to His Son, and they culminate with the Son raising them up to eternal life on the last day. What is this but what Paul spoke of in Romans eight twenty nine to 30 when he said that those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called These whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all one and the same reality of which both our Lord, here in John 6, and later his apostle in Romans 8, spoke of. And what Jesus speaks there in verse 37, he elaborates upon and unpacks in verses 38 through 40. He says that he came not to do his own will, but the Father's will. Now, as as he was God, the will of our Lord Jesus Christ was one and the same with that of God the Father. But as man with a true human soul and body, he had a human will, which was a part of his true human nature, which was distinct from the divine will. But nevertheless, his human will was always in complete submission to the divine will and always in complete agreement with the divine will. He had come to do nothing other than that which his Father had sent him to do, which was that he should lose none of all those that the Father had given to him, all those that had come to him as a result of that giving, but that he would raise them up, preserve them, on, raise them up on the last day. And he brings the entire picture then together in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so, just as the Father had given a people to the Son, and it was the Father's will that they be preserved by Christ so as to be raised up on the last day, another way of expressing it is to say that it was the Father's will that all who look to the Son and all who believe in Him will have eternal life and be raised up by Christ at the last day. Those who believe in the Son are those who are given to the Son by the Father. And those who are given to the Son by the Father are those who believe. They're all one and the same group. Now let's notice a few things here. For one, we see the sovereignty of God at work in salvation, that God had sovereignly ordained the work of Christ, His coming into the world to save sinners. 
We also see that God has ordained the salvation of particular sinners. There are sinners whom the Father has given to His Son to be saved by Him. God has chosen them for salvation and they will be saved. They will be drawn to Christ. And we'll, uh, we'll consider that more uh, as we look at verses 44 and 45 next week. They will be saved because they will be taught of God concerning His Son and they will be drawn in that way to saving faith in Christ. God is the one who is sovereignly orchestrating this and working all of it out. He's given a people to His Son. He will draw them to the Son by means of teaching them. And it is the will of the Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and that Christ will raise them up on the last day. This is God's will. It's not merely His moral will in which He declares what is, what is good and right and acceptable to Him. It is His decreed will. His will by which He has foreordained all of those things which most certainly will come to pass. We see the sovereignty of God here. And so, let this be a comfort to you. When you look around you and you see chaos in the world, and you see the church, broadly the universal church, in troubling times, sometimes we maybe feel a little bit like Elijah. Right? He said, I'm the only one left. Everybody else has gone over to Baal. What did the Lord say? The Lord said, no, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knees to Baal. We see, we see here from the, the words of Christ that, that God is, is sovereign in charge of salvation. God will have his people. They will come to Christ. They will persevere because Christ will hold on to them and God will, Christ will raise them up on the last day. They will have eternal life. And so, so let, this, let this be a comfort to you. Let it also be a comfort to you that Christ will hold on to you. It's not you holding on to Christ that is the deciding factor in your salvation. It's the fact that Christ has saved you and Christ will hold on to you. Which brings us to the second observation that we need to see, which is the security of believers. Jesus says that those who come to him, he will not cast out. He will not cast them out when they come. He will not cast them out after they have come to him. And this is a very precious truth. But we need to make sure that we understand rightly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that he will not cast out anyone who simply makes a verbal profession of faith, or that he will not cast out anyone who simply makes an outward show of coming to him. On the contrary, he says in Matthew fifteen thirteen, every plant which my father did not plant will be uprooted. He says in John fifteen two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. The point is that there are plants which the Father has not planted. There are those who appear to be in Christ, but yet are not truly united to Christ. They're not truly abiding in him in a saving way. They may have verbally confessed Christ's name. They may have made an outward show of having come to him, be it by baptism or by joining a church or any number of things. The point here is that Jesus' Jesus's words here in verse 37, offer no comfort to any except those who truly come to Him. We can fool other people. Sometimes we even fool ourselves. Jesus' words offer comfort for those who truly come to Him. We have to see that we don't cut our own selves off through unbelief or through our neglect of Him. The words of Jesus here offer no comfort to anyone who says farewell to Jesus and forsakes Jesus. But the words of Jesus offer immense comfort. 
for all who come to him and do not cease coming to him. I had a new members class yesterday and I was uh, struck afresh uh, by the language of our, our church confession and its article on the perseverance of the saints where it says uh, that, the, that the grand mark of the saints is their persevering attachment to Christ. They, they come to Christ and they keep coming. They don't, they don't stop. They don't cease from coming. The words of Jesus offer immense comfort for all who come to him and continue to abide in him day by day. These words offer immense comfort for all who come to him and continue to abide in his word. As he says in John 8, 31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You may be weak as a believer. You often will be weak as a believer. Your faith will not be nearly as strong as you wish it were. In regard to your works, you will often say with Paul, The good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. A lot of times we're weaker in faith, weaker in our actions, more inclined to sin, and so on, than we wish that we were. The words of Thomas Watson are true. He said, The believer cannot lay hold on Christ except with a trembling hand. There is a spirit of infirmity on him. Yet he says, You are the spouse of Christ. He will bear with you as the weaker vessel. Will a husband divorce his wife because she is weak and sickly? No, he will be the more tender with her. Christ hates treachery, but he will pity infirmity. Our Lord Jesus here is the one who says, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Praise God. Thirdly, we see a strong encouragement here in the words of verse 37, and really all of this passage, to come to Jesus. Right? He says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus calls us to work for this food that endures, which is to believe in Him, and then to walk in obedience that flows from that faith. He tells us to come and work, which is to come and believe. He says, The Son of Man will give to you this food that endures to eternal life. He says in verse 35 that He Himself is the bread of life, that He's that bread of God that came down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says that the one who comes to Him, He will not cast out. What a strong encouragement this is to all who desire to come to Christ, to all who desire the forgiveness of sins, to all who desire reconciliation with God and eternal life with Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, new believer, old believer, it doesn't matter. Come to Christ. Keep coming. Keep pressing into Him. Continue abiding in Him. Continue on in His Word. Continue believing. Seek Him by prayer. Seek Him by means of the Word. And rest assured, He will not cast you out. And if you have never yet believed, if you have lived in great sin, great wickedness, whatever you may have done, whoever you may be, come to Jesus today. That's what his words mean. That's what these words were intended for, is to call you to believe in Christ. One pastor from olden times was preaching on verse 37, and he said, If the words of Christ himself, such kind and gracious words as these are, will not encourage and prevail upon you to come to him I'm sure that nothing I can say will do it, and therefore shall say no more, but only desire you to consider of it before it's too late. So come to Christ. Believe in Him. It is the gracious will of God that everyone who believes in Christ will have eternal life and be raised up by Him on the last day. And so today, if you're here, is 
voice. Do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for for Christ and for His coming, for His life and death and resurrection. Lord, we pray that everyone here would come to Christ. Lord, that You would draw us to Him, that You would preserve us, that You strengthen our faith, that You build us up in Him, that You would grant to us that we may continue to abide in Christ and continue in His Word and so truly be His disciples. We praise You for the greatness of your grace given to us in the coming of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.